Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host, Krishan Kupchand, and my guest today is Timothy Morte. Timothy writes a publication on the global startup scene where he aims to bunker bust the San Francisco and Silicon Valley bubble and shows the stories of innovation and venture formation essentially everywhere else. And he shows how essentially innovative they can be. Um, His publication is called Realistic Optimist. However, if I were to add a third word to describe Timothy's work beyond global, it's prolific. He has written 30 plus incredible ecosystem dives on nations ranging from Tunisia to the Democratic Republic of Congo to Pakistan. He has more recent pieces on novel business models intersecting both technology and pharma. And he's also taken a look at the impact of mega funds like SoftBank and Singapore's sovereign wealth funds activity in emerging and frontier markets. I'm incredibly excited for this conversation as we seek to absorb some of Timothy's hard-earned insights into the globalized startup world. So let's begin by asking the man himself about the origin story of his interest in the global startup world. Timothy, please tell us a bit of kind of context here into how you kind of got into uh, exploring this ever pertinent theme. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Krishan, for having me. First time me doing this, so uh, really excited. Uh, so the origin story uh, goes goes the following way. Uh, I was at university in the UC Santa Barbara in California, um, and I wanted to do international development, international aid. So I did the World Bank View Summit. I was reading quite a couple of books and kind of wanted to go into, you know, UN, UNDP uh, type work. Uh, and, and as I read more and more books, I realized that the ROI of the money spent on aid uh, was more than questionable. Uh, for the for one big reason is that you know it, it was more of a band aid um, kind of a band aid approach than building you know sustainable economies um, because when you bring consultants who have a five year mandate to countries they're not necessarily as incentivized to build something long lasting as someone who lives there uh, and so I kind of realized that one of the best ways to kind of for economies to grow was to was to have local innovators uh, build. Uh, create jobs, solve problems in their home markets, uh, and that's when I found find out found out about you know the very new phenomenon of startup ecosystems sprouting everywhere in the world from Latin America, Africa, Middle East, Asia, uh, and so we kind of my best friend at the time, still a best friend, uh, is Palestinian, uh, and so we we looked at Palestine specifically and we're like, okay, how can we support startups in Palestine? That's when we came up with the idea of Grow Home, uh, which sought to put together, to put in relation startups in Palestine to investors and mentors in the Palestinian diaspora. So did that for about two years, um, closed that uh, about a year ago, came back to France uh, to work at a startup here. Uh, But I've stayed kind of convinced that A, um, the emergence of startup ecosystems around the world is going to be one of the greatest value creations of this century. Uh, and B, the reason why I write this newsletter, it's still severely undercovered by the media. Uh, and when it is, it's very kind of pompous, uh, not super pragmatic um, or, or very surface level. So that's that's why that's that's what I try to dig into with my pieces. Fantastic. So one thing that I'll just note here is you spoke about the emergence of you know startup ecosystems across the world being underrated in some sense. And one of my favorite essays on this is regarding the still nascent digitization of the world. I mean, really 
only 60% of the world, or you know, 70% of the world, if I'm not mistaken, numbers along those lines, has access to, to internet right now, right? And so the idea here being, over the next century, we're still yet to see these models that may seem trite and old permeate across the globe, but also there's new models to be unlocked. And I'm hoping to ask you about that later on as well. Uh, could you share more about, you mentioned the, the kind of dios- diaspora thesis here and the intersection of diasporas with their local ecosystems back home. Uh, what are your what, what is the kind of high level story here, and what are some of the kind of like interesting anecdotes you can kind of pick up on as it relates to that pattern of diasporas interacting with sure. uh, local startup ecosystems? The the starting principle is very simple, uh, and I think it's from you know, and that anyone who, who kind of has a third culture who's traveled knows about, which is brain drain. Uh, so the fact of uh, you know countries losing their best talent to exile. Uh, and that's very, very um, potent in emerging markets because opportunities are not as many there as they are in the West. Uh, and so you have for basically every country in the so-called global South, uh, big quotation marks, a bunch of very educated, very successful people from that country who live abroad. Um, and the diaspora thesis is kind of how do we leverage that community who also has an intrinsic emotional attachment to their land? Uh, to get involved with local innovators back home and kind of share that knowledge. It's not, you know, it, it's it's not an extreme position. India has done it extremely well. Uh, Israel is a country built by the diaspora in a way and, and which still continues to be. Um, so that that's kind of the starting basis. It's how can countries in emerging markets and especially startups leverage the incredible resource that is their educated and financially successful diasporas abroad for their betterment. Fantastic. What are some examples that come to mind that exhibit this uh, this pattern? So India, uh, India, Israel. Uh, I mean, a lot of the tech giants today in the U.S. are headed by uh, Indians, uh, and more more than Indian Americans, it's you know Indians who were born in India, grew up in India, were educated in India, and then came to the U.S. Uh, to work in tech. Um, and so the Indian startup ecosystem and the Israeli one two big examples of how communities of diasporas kind of cross-pollinate with their home country and their home country's tech ecosystem um, by bringing uh, capital, knowledge, talent, and connections uh, back home. Awesome. In terms of looking at specific startup ecosystems, and you you have this unique kind of global perspective right now, what is it that you think makes a startup ecosystem tick versus not ticking? I know there's many other pieces or many essays that people have written on on theories of startup ecosystems. I'm curious as to like what your kind of predominant theory here is. And if you have, again, stories or examples of what has worked and what hasn't, I'm just curious at a high level what that means. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two things. There's the, the what physically makes a startup ecosystem tick is pretty simple. It's, you know, the first su- substantial exit. Um, startup ecosystems don't develop linearly. Uh, they develop exponentially. Uh, you just need one or two big uh, successes, exits for an entire new generation of angels, founders, ecosystem operators, uh, and just you know experienced people in the startup world to then put all of their knowledge back into the ecosystem to mentor, invest, uh, and kind of help the next generation grow. So the what makes ecosystem tick are really the first couple ex- exits. Now, the, the interesting question is what creates those first couple exits? Uh, that's the really interesting question here. And to be honest, um, what I found is that it isn't regulation, uh, at least for, for the first couple exits to happen. 
uh, it really comes down to strong-willed individuals. Uh, you know, Skype in Estonia, Estonia wasn't necessarily a startup-ready country uh, at that time. Paystack um, in Nigeria wasn't especially and still isn't necessarily startup-ready. Uh, in terms of regulation, it's still not perfect. Uh, and so what it comes down to, what I found out, is really a couple strong-willed individuals uh, who kind of decide to put their talent at the contribution of their home country instead of going abroad. Because uh, in the ecosystem uh, in the ecosystem I cover, um, all of these people could have had the opportunity to go to the U.S. and just build their life there, but decided to stay home uh, and build uh, the first uh, ecosystem there. Interesting. Um, um, just going back a second, you mentioned Paystack in Nigeria. I'm totally unfamiliar with that story. Could you kind of share that with myself and the audience, please? Yeah, so to put it very simply, Paystack uh, kind of markets itself as the stripe for Africa. Uh, and you'll understand why that's relevant in the future. Uh, so it was created in Nigeria. It was, I think, one of the, if not the first Nigerian startup to get into Y Combinator, uh, which obviously opened a whole bunch of doors. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, they were acquired by Stripe, uh, which, which explains kind of the first exit for around, I think, 200 million. Um, and so that, 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 you know, that's kind of the, when we talk about what makes an ecosystem tick, that first exit uh, of Paystack in Nigeria made the Nigerian ecosystem tick. But at the same time, uh, at the Nigerian ecosystem didn't necessarily create the Paystack success story. It was like two very determined founders uh, in a very hostile regulatory environment who were kind of like, whatever, we're going to do this, uh, who got the help from YC and obviously got a bunch of unfair advantages from there. Uh, but that kind of, you know, pushed their way. Uh, and push the ecosystem forward. So kind of my, my overwhelming point here is that there isn't necessarily a way that startup ecosystems take in particular. It's really down to the first couple individuals uh, who are like, I'm ready to spend the next five to 10 years really struggling uh, to make this happen at home. So they almost set a role model-like example on a cultural basis, but then also on a financial basis, like VCs can underwrite that according to uh, what they believe ostensible exits could look like given what's happened in the last couple of years is, 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 is that the framework there? Well, that's on the financial side. What's, what's more interesting. And when we talk about mafias is the human talent and human capital it creates uh, because in ecosystems where there isn't a lot of startup activity, um, you know, startup, econ startups, economic model is very specific. Uh, it's very counterintuitive to someone who's trained on traditional business. Uh, and so one of the big, big problems these ecosystems have are a lack of human capital, not because there isn't the talent, but because there's a lack of startup literate uh, human capital. Um, and so what these first exits create is sure uh, kind of a validation for investors that yes, it is possible to get big exits in these countries, but uh, more specifically, kind of a dissemination of talent across then a whole bunch of new initiatives that have the startup training uh, and that have an exit experience. So do you think in that scenario, uh, does the path to exit matter? And what I mean by that is the, sorry, the form of exit, does that matter? So uh, there's an exit where you are sold to a strategic acquirer, you're sold to a local company, or you go public. It strikes me that for many of these countries, capital markets aren't fully established. 
unless you reach a certain barrier, at which point you kind of put yourself out there globally, um, listing on, say, the London Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, like, you know, uh, Caspi in Kazakhstan is listed on the London Stock Exchange. Uh, do you think there's room for innovation when it comes to the types of exits or ways of bringing in those acquirers for those financial results? I know that that's not the core thing. The core thing you mentioned is that human capital is formed through alumni groups within the company. But do you think there's space for for innovations or more activity when it comes to uh, trying to create exits in the in the later stage sense of the word? Yeah, I know some uh, some local stock markets in those countries are trying to get people to list or trying to get companies to list in the local stock market. It just sometimes it just doesn't make sense uh, for these companies to do so, just because the the capital pool is so much greater. Uh, if you go to the Nasdaq, for example, uh, and when you ask, does the type of exit matter? As we said, the what really counts is the human capital that is then disseminated, and also the validation that exits are possible. So I don't necessarily think that the exit, the way of exit, is is necessarily super important. I think exiting uh, is more important. Okay, cool. So I would like for us to go on a bit of a world tour, if you will, given that your writing kind of has that flavor already. And I'd love to just name a few countries from different continents and get, you know, Timothy's 101 on the startup ecosystem there, kind of what's happened thus far and what your kind of take on it is. Uh, are you down for that? Yeah, it'll be, be, be very macro. Uh, obviously, a lot of people know a lot more about these ecosystems. Um, but by the way, every one of the countries... I think we're going to talk about, I've probably written about. So it'll be kind of the summary of what I've written about. Okay, fantastic. Feel free to go on, you know, digressions as you will. I'm sure the audience will enjoy the more uh, nonlinear thinking that may come to mind as you share these stories as well. Uh, let's start with uh, a continent that has been a part of the, you know, Go go east is what a lot of people have been saying, right? In terms of like learning from new kind of startup models. So let's let's start with Asia, and uh, in particular, I'm curious about Pakistan. Um, and there's a lot of venture kind of you know activity there last couple of years. Could you go and give us a 101 on Pakistan's startup ecosystem? Yeah, Pakistan's super interesting because 2021 really saw, I mean, everywhere it saw a massive increase in VC funding, but in Pakistan it was very. Um, very marked. And I know that one of the VCs in Pakistan said, and I thought it was a very apt ex expression, it was like, she said it was like drinking from a fire hose. Uh, so there was really this massive influx uh, of foreign VC funding. Um, and I, I looked a bit deeper and it, it seems once again, the diaspora's at play here. So a couple players in Silicon Valley who have Pakistani origins kind of acted as the bridge uh, to pitch these Silicon Valley VCs on opportunities in their own home country, which is Pakistan. Uh, so there's a huge, huge, um, uh, huge influx of foreign capital. It has drastically slowed down, but that isn't Pakistan specific. Uh, and when we talk about kind of uh, for, for each country, I'll do, you know, one one company that's kind of the uh, um, that kind of represents and exemplifies what's going on in that market. Uh, but in Pakistan, you had the case of Airlift, uh, which raised a massive Series B. Uh, led by Harry Stebbings from 20VC. Uh, so you can see it's kind of all over the place, different cultures and, and, and countries meet. Uh, and Airlift started as kind of a communal ride-sharing platform. So it's like Uber, but for minibuses. And then they switched to quick commerce. Uh, and they kind of crashed pretty fast and unexpectedly um, 
when they were trying to raise their Series C uh, because they tried to raise it the moment where the VC winner really hit full-fledged. And so they had the capital committed, but uh, the lead VCs kind of delayed their wire transfers. Um, and since the unit economics were not uh, optimal, uh, that led to the crash of the company pretty violently. Uh, and there's this big debate right now if, if that's a boon or uh, a negative uh, for the ecosystem itself. I, I would say it's a positive. Um, that's just my opinion. What are some lessons we can take away from A, the business model of Airlift and B, the way in which they ran their unit economics as it relates to building in these globalized or frontier markets? Yeah, so I'm not an expert on their unit economics. Uh, I know that from the research that was done on kind of why they crashed, they were expanding really, really, really fast. So full scale blitzscaling um, without maybe paying as much attention as they should to profitability and without seeing that a year later, uh, that's what investors would care about, kind of the the, the health uh, of your unit economics and your path to profitability. So I know, for example, they expanded into South Africa super early. Um, uh, they were opening warehouses all over the country and, and rest of world has this great publication where they interview uh, ex-airlift employees who kind of talk about how warehouses weren't super well managed. Uh, it was kind of all over the place. Um, they scaled and scaled down really fast. Um, so I guess lessons to be learned, um, that funding bonanzas kind of don't, do not last forever. Uh, and that you, you should kind of, kind of keep a long-term outlook, um, and pragmatism about what the funding outlook could look like in a couple of years. Mm. My, my theory here is that in many of these markets, there's a sort of prudence premium that is not accounted for, wherein... Uh, when the ecosystems, especially the funding ecosystems, are less mature and it's harder to kind of corral capital on a dime, uh, these companies need to know how to have positive unit economics through what would otherwise be Series A, Series B, Series C. Instead of aiming just to hit milestones, they need to really be far more aggressive on uh, that protection and endurance. Uh, did you have thoughts on the business model as well, by the way, not just unit economics, but the kind of ride sharing model um, and the kind of move to kind of commerce? Well, I know they, they switched because the unit economics of ride sharing were really tough. Uh, there's this other company called Swivel, which is an Egyptian uh, company that does the, an, an Egyptian startup that does the same and that actually went public a couple months ago or a couple years ago. Uh, and that is, its stock is just crashing down at the moment because uh, the unit economics are so tough to get around. Um So, I mean, if they switched to quick commerce, there was a reason. It was probably surrounding unit economics. Also, Ride hailing during COVID uh, didn't mm-hmm. help. Um, so I guess maybe that's kind of an outlier factor that doesn't create a doctrine. Where is the ecosystem right now in Pakistan post airlift? How are people feeling about things? You said some people are seeing it positively and negatively. Um, what, what are the kind of you know, ex airlift people doing? Uh, are there any interesting kind of startups being uh, on, on your kind of radar right now as it relates to Pakistan? Yeah, I don't have the I don't have the exact names, but I know there is an airlift airlift mafia. So a bunch of ex uh, employees are raising funds raising funds for their own startup. Uh, kind of what I say in my piece about airlift is that it created the belief amongst Pakistani founders that a such amounts could be raised in Pakistan, and that b um, they could find you know extremely stimulating st- stimulating startup jobs in Pakistan without having to leave. Uh, which obviously, as someone who's 
looked at the diaspora uh, a lot is really interesting. It's kind of, I feel like it's one of the first times where, and that's why I'm so excited about startup ecosystem, startup ecosystems in these markets. It's kind of like the first time there's a sector that's exciting at home where you can contribute to the, to the growth of your own economy. I love that because you think about a place like Pakistan, you think about many of these, you know, Eastern places in particular, um, uh, big families are the vibe, right? And being able to stay home uh, in that kind of communal environment is very, is, is you know, very important to, to many people. And um, I know I speak to people who've kind of come to London and they say, you know, I hate the weather. I'm sick of the culture. I, I think London's fantastic, by the way, but they, they say that to me. And they're like, I'm only here because the labor market's good. But the labor market, quite frankly, isn't even that good anymore. So uh, the idea of them kind of, you know, being able to find sustenance in building up these ecosystems back home is, as you mentioned, uh, incredibly exciting. Let's move on to our next country, Timothy. Uh, Indonesia, please. What is Timothy's 101 on Indonesia's ecosystem? Interesting startups that he's kind of taken a look at and uh, you know the dynamics that kind of run uh, this country. Yeah, well, Indonesia obviously is uh, the biggest market in Southeast Asia in terms of people, in terms of kind of purchasing power. Singapore is very, very different. Singapore kind of Singapore is kind of the Dubai of Southeast Asia, uh, it seems to me, where a lot of the startups are HQ'd there because it's easy to raise funds. There's a good uh, regulatory environment, but obviously the, the, the lion's share of their activity is in countries such as Indonesia. Uh, what's really interesting about Indonesia is that, A, the local market is massive, so you can do a lot without leaving Indonesia. You can achieve great scale without leaving Indonesia. Uh, and then a lot of the surrounding countries... Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam have pretty similar demographics. Um, so, you know, a business model that works in Indonesia with a tiny bit of tweaking can also work in Malaysia, can also work in the Philippines. Um, and when we talk about the, uh, the, the, the big story in Indonesia, it'd be kind of the merger between Gojek, uh, which was a ride-hailing startup uh, specialized on, the, on, on OJEK, so motorbikes. Uh, and Tokopedia, which was a, an e-commerce giant in the country. And those two merged to create the GoTo group, uh, which is set to represent around 2% of Indonesia's GDP. Um, and today they encapsulate, I mean, they do absolutely everything uh, you can think of. They're really trying to capture the, um, uh, the internet economy within a single company. Uh, so yeah, if, if you want a deeper dive on Indonesia, definitely look at the GoTo group because they kind of encapsulate the economic power um, that the rise of the internet economy in Southeast Asia can have. So three things I'll flag there. One, if you look at Indonesia's population, this is close to 273 million people. I was just Googling it right now to make sure I got that statistic correct. Um, going back to Pakistan, 231 million people. Uh, I, I, I go for dinner with a friend who's from Pakistan quite often, and he's always, you know, asking me, Krish, why are you interested in these nascent regions that have like three to five million people? That's the size of a city. That's the size of a, of a state in these countries. You know, I'm, I'm interested in Mongolia and Guyana. Um, and I, 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 I think these are beasts that one, uh, a simple mind struggles to reckon with when it comes to the scale of these places. So the first thing is I just want to flag the scale of population there. Two, for listeners, I wanted to flag the um, scale of the economies here as well. In particular, you mentioned Indonesia. Um, you mentioned Gojek Group having something like 2% of GDP um, as their, I don't know, market size or as their revenue. Those are obviously very different things there. But that notwithstanding, uh, 
the gross domestic product, the GDP of Indonesia is one point, let's say 1.2 trillion approximately uh, in 2022. And so with that in mind, um, 2% of that is a very significant number. That is a very meaningful uh, company. That is a mega company. And the third thing that I wanted to flag is I watched this fantastic video on uh, one of the biggest and most iconic conglomerates that defined the industrial development of Indonesia. This is a company called the Salem Group. The origin story behind the Salem Group is very much intertwined with the way in which the government set five-year plans and the way in which the leaders of the country would outsource much of the industrialization to companies they trusted by giving them certain types of concessions and therefore enabling them to kind of execute and try and build regional winners. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, Indomie is a company that's from Indonesia, for example. Indocement is another one that kind of is very export-based. There's very much a tradition of consolidation and these mega corps. I'm not too sure what the implications of that are, but I just want to flag that because maybe there's some sort of metaphor that can be drawn there. Um, What are your thoughts on recent fundraising announcements perhaps in Indonesia or the... Uh, mafias are kind of emerging out of Gojek and Tokopedia. Well, it's I think more than the size of the economies you are flagging, uh, the growth projections of those economies are what what are really interesting, especially uh, the internet economy. So there's this really I'm looking at it right now from the article, but there's this big Bain analysis uh, where, for example. Between 2021 and 2025, e-commerce is growing at 18%. Uh, online media is growing 26%. Online travel growing 30%. So I think what's really interesting to look at is in, th- in Southeast Asia, especially in what you said about the consolidation of big groups, super interesting because you have the, the SEA group also, uh, which is based in uh, Singapore. Uh, that's another big conglomerate there. So it's definitely a trend. Um, and what I was reading when thinking about those big consolidations is that those business models are way more um, inspired by what's happening in China than what happened in uh, Silicon Valley, right? So I think there's this quote, I don't remember who said it, uh, but it's kind of like in Silicon Valley, the goal is the unbundling of services. uh, And in Southeast Asia, the goal is the bundling of internet services to be the first super app to capture the entire uh, internet economy. Um, and so when you look at, when you compare business model of Southeast Asia, the, the reference point is really China, WeChat, and, uh, and all those, those, those mega corporations, those super apps that have entirely captured uh, the, 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 the growing internet market over there. Amazing. What are some of the, uh, you mentioned SEA. I'm not too familiar with that story. What's, what's the story there? What's the... Um... Uh, what, 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 what does the kind of super app do in that case? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. SEA was more of a was more of an add-on to your point about consolidation. Uh, not super familiar with what they do. I know it's e-commerce as well. They're based in Singapore and they're they're absolutely massive. Mario Gabrielli uh, from the Generalist has a great piece on them. Okay, fantastic. I think uh, one thing that I've been tracking, as you mentioned, is the the super app playbook and the nascent regions in which that may or may not be possible or where that's worked before. And it strikes me that um, in the same way that, you know, YC was really an innovation when it came to kind of pre-seed funding, right? Um, And then people started aiming to go earlier and earlier with their checks. And so you have, for example, uh, there's another accelerator called Commonwealth, which is oriented around 
before your idea is formed, before the team is formed, then invest in the person themselves, entrepreneur first as well. The idea is fishing upstream. Uh, if you look at a lot of these emerging frontier markets that are yet that, that are just early in their kind of like you know digitization cycle, um, I, I, one question that I'd ask for like listeners perhaps if they find this topic interesting is to try and look at some of the countries that are, as mentioned, maybe at 40% digitization, 50% digitization. They're not ready yet, but what does it mean to be a first mover there and to invest in the long term? You can have a catalytic effect on the ecosystem. The economics may not be there on day one, but in like three to 10 years, that can be the case. Uh, I digress, however. Let's move to another continent, Timothy. Um, let's move to uh, Africa and uh, let's, move, let's include the Middle East in this as well. Um, what are your thoughts on Tunisia? and that kind of startup ecosystem. Yeah, Tunisia is the first ecosystem I covered, actually. Uh, they have this really interesting, uh, first of all, it's a tiny market. Uh, they have this very interesting framework, which is called the Startup Act. Uh, and they were kind of the first ones, first African countries to put a clear regulatory framework around startups that's aimed to really like legally define what a startup is. And then from that definition, uh, then um, you know, offer all the services uh, and define the regulations that fit them. It's obviously not perfect and they're working on a revamp of that. Uh, so Tunisia is really interesting. And Tunisia also has a specificity of being one of the only countries that, for lack of a better word, succeeded in its Arab Spring uh, in 2011 when they deposed uh, Ben Ali as their, their dictator uh, and, um, and uh, reinstated the democracy, which I know if Tunisian listeners are, are, do, are listening right now, probably consider is under threat. That's that's an, that's another topic. Um, and so, yeah, Tunisia is really interesting because they were kind of the first country in Africa to lay out cl a clear regulatory framework for startups. Uh, and when we, when we talk about one of the big success stories uh, in Tunisia, there's multiple, but the, the biggest one that comes to mind today is called InstaDeep, uh, which is an AI startup, uh, which has... Uh, it's very it's very interesting. It's my piece next week, by the way, kind of digging deep into them. Uh, but they were started in Tunisia by by uh, uh, an AI, uh, someone who studied AI, and then a web developer there. Uh, their whole spiel is creating bespoke solutions for enterprise. So AI solutions for enterprise clients uh, moved to London, are HQ'd in London now, and they were just acquired by BioNTech. Uh, for $680 million, uh, which makes it the biggest African exit uh, of all time. Uh, and obviously now the question is, well, uh, if they've been in London for the past couple of years, is it really a Tunisian company? Um, and for me, that case is really emblematic of a lot of African startup ecosystems where the talent is clearly there because it's Tunisian mm -hmm. talent. They still have a lot of Tunisian talent working in Tunis. Um, but there's just this this there's just this barrier to scale uh, in, in many of these African markets in terms of regulation. Uh, so for example, it's really tough uh, as a Tunisian company to buy foreign services. Uh, there's a cap on that. And so obviously if you're, uh, if, if you're scaling, you just can't afford to not buy the best SaaS tools, the best APIs, uh, et cetera. Uh, so for me, the, the, the InstaDeep story is really emblematic of kind of the African founder dilemma where the talent is there, the opportunity is there, uh, but there is just kind of this exile, th this need for exile at some point uh, to be able to scale your company as you want to scale it. 
Wow. I wasn't familiar with that uh, regulation that you mentioned, the uh, constraint on buying foreign services. It's pretty uh, jarring. Um, do you think that'll be revamped? That that'll be included in the revamp? They'll get rid of that in the in the next. Yeah, that's year? one of the big. That's one of the big. Uh, the the big topics that a lot of people are complaining about because uh, obviously it's the most it's the most complicated. And in North Africa in particular, what's what's also complicated is. I mean, Tunisia, uh, Libya, uh, Morocco, Algeria, obviously, and Egypt is kind of a side, but small markets uh, and also markets that aren't very well integrated. Uh, so they're not necessarily cordial, so it's hard to expand. Mm. Uh, I know a founder in Morocco, uh, if they want to expand to Algeria, they have to create an entire new entity in Algeria, uh, have to create an entire new entity in Tunisia. Uh, so it's just it, it's it's a complicated region to start with because uh, the initial market is really small, and if you want to kind of test new markets, it's also a whole new a uh, whole new ball game. Are there any developments with regards to stronger economic integration in uh, the North African region? That I do not know. Uh, I know kind of the gold standard for startups in North Africa is to kind of test quickly test in your home market and then attack Egypt. Because uh, Egypt obviously a demographic powerhouse uh, where you can stay for a while <laughs> without getting bored. Um, so, so I know that's kind of the standard, but I don't have don't have necessarily uh, pertinent information on the intereconomic agreements between the Maghreb countries. Understandable. If any listeners have any information here, we uh, are all ears. Uh, my email will be shared at the end. Uh, okay, let's move on to another country on the African continent. Uh, recently had an election um, considered to be, you know, one of the big dogs. I'm curious, what do you think about Nigeria's startup and tech ecosystem? Well, so, so yeah, it, it kind of relates to uh, the Paystack story, obviously, is kind of the, the overwhelming story there. There's other big players like Flutterwave, uh, which which is also a fintech. Um, and what I find really interesting about Nigeria is, is kind of my point from the beginning, is that the big startup success stories precede um, sensible legislation. So the will of the founders uh, and kind of their desire to make something is kind of what try, pushes regulation towards the top. And it's not, okay, uh, kind of macro thinking, politicians think about, oh, how could we spur the startup ecosystem? And then success comes from that. It's, it's more scrappy founders are like, I want to do this. We're going to do this. They push, they push, they push, they push. Uh, and and legislation tries to follow uh, to make it easier for the next generation of founders. But Nigeria also, you know, massive economic powerhouse uh, in Africa. Do you think there's a dearth of uh, startup sophisticated lawyers in these countries, which obviously don't have a startup ecosystem or just starting to form their startup ecosystem? Uh, there's not enough folks with that kind of intersection, intersecting expertise. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think... What, pre- what needs to precede that is, is relevant legislation. Because, uh, for example, in Tunisia, there's no stock option legislation. So you can have the best startup law you want. Uh, if, if there's no law, um, uh, nothing, nothing much is going to get done. Well, the idea here in being the lawyers lobby for better yeah. laws and they kind of draft you know, more pertinent uh, legislation as well. Uh, one anecdote that came to mind here in terms of that kind of lacking feedback loop perhaps is uh, one of the people we're going to be interviewing soon is the head of the african energy chamber and he uh, also runs this kind of pan-african legal services company which 
works for, you know, on kind of market entry into different African nations. And one of the things that he kind of mentioned in a conversation that we had was it took 20 years for the petroleum legislation to be enacted, petroleum regulation legislation for kind of oil extraction in Nigeria. Um, like they, they wanted to start this piece 20 years ago and it took them 20 years to finally get it across the finish line. Um, the feedback loops seem to be somewhat uh, slow there perhaps. Yeah, and that's why that's why initiatives like the Startup Act are so important. Uh, kind of putting a name on the on the legislation you want to build, making it clear it's for startups. Uh, and what's really interesting in the Tunisian case is that it was really a bottom up, a bottom up process. Uh, so ecosystem operators, founders, lawyers were talking directly with the government uh, and with the, the the organization that was kind of heading uh, the Startup Act. So definitely the feedback loop. I think could be faster uh, if it is really a bottom-up initiatives where it's really collaboration between, you know, the government and the ecosystem rather than the ecosystem complaining and the government trying to do something. Awesome. So let's move on to another continent. Let's move on to the Americas. In particular, let's look at Latin America. Uh, What are your thoughts on the Mexican ecosystem, uh, Timothy? Yeah. Uh, I, I, it's one of my favorite ecosystems, to be honest. Uh, it's, it's just, about it. Yeah, it's just, I mean, first of all, it has, uh, it has very, very interesting demographics. Uh, so kind of what I've read about the Mexican ecosystem is that the, the gap is between people who have access to the internet and people who don't have access to digital services. So that actually represents a big gap. Uh, and so founders can really, really uh, optimize uh, those people who have the internet but don't have much to do with it. Um, what's also really interesting about Mexico is uh, the closeness with the U.S. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of Mexicans working in Silicon Valley uh, that act, once again, as the bridge, and the bridge, it's, it's, it's easier to build than Pakistan because it's right there. Uh, it's you know a couple hours flight. Um, and you also have, and I wrote a piece about that, about the U.S.-Mexico corridor. You also have a bunch of American big tech companies that outsource uh, their technical um, work to Mexico. And so you have kind of the spillover uh, of Mexican tech talent that is trained by the U.S. indirectly because they're working for them, but they stay in Mexico. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's, it's really interesting, uh, really, really interesting um, ecosystem. Uh, and the company that would kind of, the, the the start of of the ecosystem would be Linio, uh, which was a an e commerce platform built by Rocket Internet. Fascinating company, by the way. Kind of a venture builder that goes into very new markets, sends a couple consultants, and say figure it out. Um, uh, Mario, the generalist, also has a great piece on Rocket Internet. Um, and so the Linio story kind of laid the foundations for the internet economy in Mexico, since it was the first, you know, at scale e-commerce platform, one of the first, they had to build, you know, online payments, logistics, et cetera. Um, so yeah, would, would definitely encourage deeper dive into that story to understand uh, the Mexican ecosystem as a whole. Awesome. And next country, final country on the list is uh, Brazil. Yeah. Uh, so Brazil, only Portuguese con- speaking company in Latin uh, country in Latin America. A massive, massive force in fintech, uh, and not only because 
the founders are so great, but what I really enjoy about studying Brazil is how proactive the government is. Uh, so the government uh, is really big on open banking. So the fact that banks have to share their users' data uh, with others uh, in order for more fintech um, innovation to spur uh, and kind of exemplifying the Brazilian government's enthusiasm about fintech is uh, the PIX story, which is kind of a peer-to-peer. It's like a government-owned Venmo, uh, if you're familiar. I don't know if you have Venmo in the UK, um, but kind of a, a wallet-to-wallet uh, exchange, which basically circumvents uh, all the fees the banks have. It's instant. Uh, anyone can open an account. Uh, and that really just boosted uh, financial inclusivity uh, in that country. Is this similar to um, the UPI thing in yeah, India? Yeah, exactly. That's the model. That's the model. What are some kind of like core differences that may exist? Or what are some kind of like, uh, what are your thoughts on the design space of that type of product from a government as a whole? Like, how can it go wrong? How can it go right? Yeah, I, I know one of the, the criticisms is that the government is kind of in a, in a situation of monopoly because uh, they're an actor in this space, but they also regulate the space. Uh, so mm-hmm. private actors kind of find that suspicious. Um, and, and on a purely economic level, I mean, the service they offer, at least in terms of money transfer, is so much better than what banks offer, that banks are kind of suspicious about them taking market share. Uh, and the counter argument to that, which I find pretty interesting, is that, well, PIX is mostly or is bringing a lot of people who weren't in the financial system online or on the financial system. So Fundamentally, that creates a bigger market opportunity for the banks, um, which was also how the banks kind of justified their criticism of fintech and how fintechs responded. Like, well, yeah, but big Brazilian banks haven't served uh, lower ranks of the population, lower socioeconomic ranks. And so the fintechs are like, well, we're doing that. And fundamentally, we're just growing your market share. Now it's your market size. Sorry. Now it's your job to kind of figure out if you can get it. What are your top three companies in Brazil right now? Uh, obviously, Nubank, which which IPO'd, uh, kind of the the massive uh, neo bank there. Uh, top three, I couldn't I couldn't say. Uh, I know Brazil has a more probably more than five to ten unicorns. Uh, it's also one of the biggest consumers of social media, so it's it's a country that's very hungry for digital services. Um, but I'm I'm following other stuff about Brazil at the moment, especially. Bolsonaro coming back after his self-imposed U.S. exile. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I find these figures very interesting. Bolsonaro, I know in Pakistan as well, uh, you know, taking this full circle, the whole situation with Imran Khan and yeah. um, Sharif. Uh, there, was a, there was an interesting um, thing my friend said, which was uh, every single time Sharif goes to prison, he cleanses himself and then he goes back to being prime minister again because it's happened twice. And I was like... <laughs> I just found that quite humorous. Um, in any case, uh, final question I have for you is something that I'm just very fascinated by is the uh, unique business models that have a chance to fundamentally dominate within these regions, but also like elevate growth significantly. And we kind of touched upon this very briefly in terms of super apps, in terms of sequencing. If you were to kind of share a bit, of, a few thoughts as it relates to um, the strategic differences of operating and building products and companies within these countries uh, that are 
you could be you, you could consider you know to be frontier slash global growth markets, right? Ones that are very nascent and early in their digitization uh, cycle. Um, what are two or three high level patterns that you find interesting here, and um, how might they you know be useful to other founders or investors who are looking to see more of them? Right, like, like, like what are the dynamics that drive that? Yeah, well, the first thing uh, I would say is kind of how Silicon Valley investors were interested about Latin America during the 2021 boom, which is Latin America and startups are more interested in inclusion uh, rather than exclusion. Uh, Silicon Valley, it's kind of, you know, at least when you get the new smart fridge, right? It's not, I mean, it's helping a very, very limited segment of the population. Um, and what's really interesting in emerging markets and startups in emerging markets is that the 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 real market is in people who were severely underserved, uh, which is I feel like something Silicon Valley isn't necessarily doing. Silicon Valley creates a lot for the the top ranks of the population that can buy, uh, but it doesn't seem to have that big of an impetus on you know inclusion and especially financial inclusion. Um, and the second big macro thing, and I think that's that's the most interesting one, is really bundling versus unbundling. Uh, with a lot of the companies I study or I, I look at in emerging markets and that operate in emerging markets specifically, the goal is really how can we take a sector and kind of bundle all of the, um, all of the services that are related to, the, to that sector because we get the people there first, right? So for example, if you're a fintech company uh, in an emerging market, um, and you're the first one, like your clients have their first bank account with you, then the goal is, okay, how do I build an entire ecosystem of financial services so that they never leave me? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas maybe in, in the West, it would kind of be, how am I going to create a very, very a more niche product because the banks already offer everything, but how do I create kind of the, uh, I don't know, the, uh, um, bank for under 18 people. You know, it's very like specific innovations that take only a sliver of what banks are doing and do one of their services way better. Uh, but in emerging markets, I feel like, okay, I get a customer who comes in uh, for the first time with me. How do I keep them by offering more and more and more services? I think that's interesting. I will flag two things that before we finish. One is uh, the there seems to be a trade-off wherein, um, as I mentioned, because the purchasing power may be lower in many of these emerging and frontier markets, um, you obviously aim for a larger user base in your product. That being said, because you have absorbed multiple services per user, the unit economics or the per user kind of customer lifecycle value can be far higher than people would anticipate. And so one example I'll just kind of cite here that, that shows the contrast you've described very well is if you compare the unit economics of uh, deposits in neobanks in the UK. So we're thinking Starling, Monzo, and we'll include you know, the mobile money in the form of Revolut, right? The amount of money that's kind of deposited on a per user basis, because they already have their established bank and that established kind of digital consumer behavior um, with, with uh, normal banks, most of their deposits actually stay in their kind of traditional bank, which they trust, and they only put and use you know, Monzo or, or Starling as a checking account where they have maybe five to 10K maximum, right? In contrast, uh, for many folks in these, as you mentioned, emerging markets, 
if it's their first time experiencing a bank and it's fundamentally a digital experience, um, they're more likely to put all of their money in that. And therefore that increases the total asset size as a whole. But also there's there's a chance for culturally and like person-wise for them to pick up new consumer behaviors that they otherwise wouldn't have, right? And so there's like a chance to unlock new ways of interacting at the human computer level, which I think is just fundamentally interesting in, in those ecosystems. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of going back to Southeast Asia. That's why they develop a super apps because, you know, you order, you know, the, your, your first interaction with buying something on the internet is, you know, I don't know, Tokopedia uh, before it merged with GoTo and you bought a book online. Uh, but so you did that act of buying something online and then Tokopedia is like, oh, well, now you trust me with your bank details. How about you order a ride uh, or how about you order a movie? Uh, how about you order food? And so totally agree. Um, that's what Kareem also did uh, in the UAE is kind of the super app model is you get users to, to come to you uh, for you to provide their first internet purchasing experience. Uh, and once you do that, how do you provide more and more and more services to keep them there uh, and kind of optimize the confidence and trust that you built uh, during the early days? Yeah, fantastic. Um, I think this is a good point to kind of uh, wrap up here. Uh, one example I'm just going to give actually just before we finish really briefly is um, in terms of like that, that, that playbook that you've mentioned, uh, the best example I think is if you look at point of sale um, usage in Kazakhstan, uh, point of sale system usage in 2019, it was mostly dominated by Visa and MasterCard, kind of split 50 50. Uh, Caspi was the kind of super app of the time. They had about 80% distribution um, in terms of the population using it for payments already. And within one year, they were able to scale from essentially being 0% to being about 90% of the market as a function of that user base. And so that's the best example of, I guess, like that, that power of kind of capturing the incumbent. Uh, that being said, I've kind of like waxed and waned here. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, Timothy, before we finish this episode? I'd love to kind of, you know, have the audience hear your final uh, messages to them. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I just think that the emergence of startup ecosystems around the world uh, is the most exciting thing that's going to happen this century uh, for three main reasons. Number one is the creation of startup ecosystems in Africa, Latin America, Asia, etc. provides exciting work opportunities for young talent to either stay in the country and even better, uh, diaspora talent to come back. Uh, which I think there just wasn't a way to do that until now. Uh, there wasn't a, a su sufficient value proposition for a Pakistani in Silicon Valley to come back to Pakistan. Uh, and now I think that when you have an airlift, uh, even though they're not there anymore, but when you have a company raising 80 million, as you said, diaspora communities are often torn between, well, I'm here because the labor market's awesome, but I, I, I miss back home. So I think that's kind of the... Um, uh, the capture of talent uh, and and the the positive effect it can have on brain drain is going to be extremely exciting. Then obviously on the economic creation side, uh, it's creating jobs, growing the economy, exponential growth curves. Um, so that's that's a positive. And three, uh, very simply, the the problems they solve. Right. Uh, so the fintechs are bringing a whole bunch of people online. A sector I really enjoy is edtech. Uh, there's this great startup in Jordan called Abwab, uh, which provides um, online tutoring uh, 
uh, for K through K through twelve. Uh, and so, for example, uh, yeah, if you're not if you're a young young person from Jordan uh, and you're not satisfied with your ninth grade experience in a Jordanian public school, uh, you can you know find your way to Abwab and really level up, uh, which was not possible today, and maybe then aspire uh, to to way more, uh, which I find extremely exciting. So yeah, for me, the emergence of startup ecosystems worldwide is exciting for three reasons. Uh, it can retain and help countries retain their best talent and even bring back the other ones. Two, the inherent exponential growth curves of these countries is a boon for the economy. And three, the very problems that these startups solve uh, by way of their success means uh, that they are very pertinent uh, to be solved. Amazing. Um, actually, I know I said that was the final question. Let's treat that as the penultimate question. I have one more that's just come to mind, which I'm dying to hear your answer to, uh, which is, do you have any requests for startups um, as it relates to, you know, genres of startups you'd like to see more of? You mentioned ed tech, and I'm wondering, like, are there any product ideas which, oh, you wish you could work on, but right now you're kind of constrained, so you can't work on it, but it comes as a function of your observations. Uh, do you have a kind of like list of ideas you'd, or a couple of ideas you'd love others to kind of take the mantle on, given that you've seen niches in certain markets that uh, an entrepreneur should kind of, you know, could launch towards? Um, at risk of repeating myself here, uh, I really think that the tool for diasporas to invest in their country's startup ecosystem easily does not exist yet. Uh, a company I, I covered, Daba, is starting to do that in Africa. Uh, but when you look at the makeup of Silicon Valley, I mean, 50% of unicorn founders in the U.S. aren't American. Oh, wow. Uh, and so how, I mean, if I were to work on and, and hinting at maybe something I will do again, uh, but for me, the biggest idea to, to chase right now is how can you connect the enthusiasm that's boiling within these startup ecosystems in emerging markets with the financial power uh, of the diaspora and how can you create, you know, those bridge we talked about, how can you productize that bridge uh, and really create a connection where uh, I'm a Pakistani guy working in Silicon Valley uh, and in the same afternoon, I can invest in three Pakistani startups uh, seed round, knowing that the investment is secure, knowing that uh, all the legal docs are taken care of. Uh, and by the way, because my wife is from Palestine, I'll also throw in a check for a Palestinian startup. Um, that's That to me is what the idea I'd be really, really excited uh, to work on, which I hope I will again uh, one day. I dig it. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a massive nerd when it comes to uh, non-traditional distribution channels um, for kind of like building uh, towards your kind of market acquisition, right? And one that just came to mind here is obviously you may think of traditional places to you know advertise this in being you know community centers or you know religious facilities that are related to the religion of you know, going back home, etc. But one thing that I was thinking about was there's a really funny genre of TikToks which. Um, are focused on like the humor that only exists when you're a diaspora kid from yeah. a certain country. Yeah. I, I, one of those. And, and it strikes me the same way that Cash App used, you know, um, uh, rappers to tap into certain communities. I think in, in, in this case, it'd be very funny to kind of tap into the, uh, the, the type of diaspora humor that exists for all these countries uh, as well. But yeah, I digress. Thank you so much, Timothy, for your time. It was a wonderful conversation. And, um, yeah, onwards and upwards. If you guys want to check out more of Timothy's work, I highly recommend reading The Realistic Optimist. Uh, there's going to be some incredible pieces coming up. I'm a big fan of the 
more recent piece on the uh, on M Pharma, which is a fascinating model um, in, if I'm not mistaken, Ghana. Ghana. And, um, and he, other uh, countries, but yes. based in Ghana, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So in that case, uh, we'll cap off there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Krishan. See you soon.